0: JB Knowledge Podcast Network. On episode 91 of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, talking about InsureTech with Garrett Drogi from IMA Financial Group. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. Welcome to the InsureTech Geek Podcast. I'm your host, James Benham. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and share it with your friends. Before we get started with our interview, don't forget you can subscribe to the InsureTech Geek Podcast by texting geek out to 66866. Make sure you never miss an episode. Here I am today with our special guest, as I mentioned before, Garrett Drogi from IMA Financial Group. We're going to be talking about InsureTech. Garrett, uh, thanks for joining us on the Insure Geek podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: So Garrett, we're going to start out talking about you before we jump in talking about uh, technology. Um, I am like a lifelong, almost lifelong. I'm 43. I've been writing code since I was about 11. So I'm a pretty hardcore nerd, like to like to code, like to talk about code, like to build software and technology. But more than that, surprisingly, I'm a people person. I actually like talking about people. So tell me about yourself. First off, where are you joining us from today?
1: So I am just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, um, also 43, also software developer. So we've got a lot in common.
0: Nice. Which, you know, it's fun when you meet someone around the same age, because all of the generational references for technology, like I can say things, Garrett, that you're going to understand that most people won't. I can say that my first eight programming languages (laughs) among them was GW Basic, Fortran, Assembly, Pascal, Turbo Pascal. Uh
1: I loved Pascal. I love Pascal too. That was, that was my first. So I was, I was late to the game. You were much earlier than I was. GW Basic was the jam. (laughs) It
0: was the jam, Garrett. It was messy and sloppy, and there were no procedure calls. There were just these things called go-to statements. You had to jump around, and you made this big pile of code called spaghetti code. My first big application I built was in Pascal, and that's actually kind of how I got into technology, Garrett. Uh, Do you remember what your first application was? I I wrote a word processor that had a little encryption thing where it would encrypt your message. Huh. Um. And, and I made and I, I made it emulate kind of look like MS-DOS's edit program, the MS-DOS edit program. Yeah, I was on Linux and FreeBSD back then as well. And I used VI.
1: I was one of those weirdos that used VI for my text editor.
0: Do you remember what your first applications were
1: that you got to code? I have no idea. I took computer science in high school. Yeah, it was an elective that I thought sounded easy, <laughs> and yeah, and it was like here's Not. Pascal and here's and no, no, no. Um, but I, I really, I really enjoyed it. And later on, I got into web development, so um, you know HTML and that like that language made more sense to me. Yeah, Pascal was like I really don't understand what we're doing and why it takes five hours to make a, a, you know, a tiny little thing happen. So, yeah,
0: well, that's back before you had any like intrinsic functions, like there, there were intrinsic functions, but not a lot. And so there wasn't a lot. You, you had to hand code. I remember I had to hand code the drop down menu in Pascal, Yeah, you know, file, edit, copy, like all that. I had to hand code that. Right. And if you I get one thing wrong, <laughs> it's all you got to read. It's all over.
1: You got <laughs> to redo the it's entire all over. thing.
0: It's in the garbage. It's all yeah. over. Yeah. I got, So I'm going to throw some more stuff out for you because we're going to we're just going to go do a time warp here. Gopher sites. Did you ever get to play with Gopher before HTML? No. No, so so Gopher was like ninety three, ninety four, and it was on the way out as HTML and HTTP were on the way in. But it was like you know you had this thing between FTP and the web, with called Gopher, and it was pretty cool. But it was a predecessor to what really changed the planet, and that was HTML and HTTP and markup languages and. I mean it it was a totally brave new world um you know we we all coded static html first then we started putting code behind them and and then the the whole planet changed right
1: yeah and now so yeah. i'm i'm i should say i'm very out of date i Me no too. longer code <laughs> and and when i actually look at software today and i'm like you know all of the stuff that would take us weeks to code is now baked in Within an hour it, oh it's it's just it 's a <laughs> yeah. click of a button and shortcut insert yeah. and so um yeah no no clue what 's happening in the world of of software today well directly
0: yeah yeah garrett i'm I'm in the same boat so of of my two hundred and seventy staff, two hundred and twenty or so are engineers, and so they they do the coding. I don't do it anymore, but I'll say that you and I had to, had to learn this thing called bubble sort. And we had to learn like sort algorithms and how to store data in arrays. And now they're like, Oh yeah, I just say, I just tell the code to put the data over there. And then I tell it to bring it back. And I'm like, that used to be like two weeks of work. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's a different world. So you, you, but interestingly, you ended up getting a theater degree, yeah. which I think is super cool. I'm a hardcore musical theater, Broadway nerd. Love it. Did you want to be a performer?
1: Yeah. So I was, um, my, I was a theater major. I, I got a couple of jobs. So in it, in the coast of North Carolina, the largest studio east of Hollywood is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Several teen drama shows were filmed there while I was in college. So Dawson's Creek, like Dawson's Creek. Yeah. One Tree Hill. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so we, we made our rounds on those. My wife and I moved out to L.A., chased a couple jobs. Hence my uh, reentry into the world of software development. I started my own web development company while we were out there between acting jobs and that took on a really nice life of its own. Uh, just about the time we were, we were hitting into the black and successful, we decided we wanted to leave LA, move back east, start a family. And so I sold the company, thought I might do another startup. It, my wife got, a, got pregnant immediately, and I took a very quick job into insurance. I thought I'd be here for one to three months before I figured out what I was going to do. And, you know, 17 years later, here, <laughs> here we are. And
0: da, da, da. <laughs> yeah, right. sucked into the vortex of insurance. There it yeah, is. Yeah, baby. There it is. It does that, you know, it did that to me and I'm cool with it. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm like this. It's insane. Yeah. It's a, it, it's really important problems. When businesses can't get insurance, they're in a lot of trouble, you know, economic activity grinds to a halt. Bad things happen. Uh so it's it's an important industry. Yeah. Uh your favorite
1: acting gig, what was it? My favorite acting gig. Um or top three. You don't have to pick one. Okay. Um well I was in a I was in a lottery commercial that ran nonstop, you know, specifically at my gym, uh where I worked out for like two years. And so I would, I would be working out and I'd see people register like the guy on the screen looks like the guy on the elliptical. (laughs) And um, so it was kind of half fun, half annoying because it got to be like, yeah, yeah, that's me. (laughs) Yeah. So I I was, I'm an expert at little bit parts, one liners that need to be said. Playing lab technicians seems to be a a forte of mine. Nothing, (laughs) nothing really, really hard hitting drama. Were you ever in Dawson's Creek? Oh Yeah. I was part of Dawson's film crew back in the last season where Dawson became a filmmaker. Uh I was on his film crew. My wife was on Dawson's. She played a a store owner that that Pacey uh had a had a little deal with. We were both on One Tree Hill. Yeah, great memories of that. And and I would say I use my degree probably more than anybody that I know. You know, theater skills. Are important skills, communication, presentation, you know, improvisation, all very, very necessary in, in my role, at least. Yeah. Um, my daughter's a
0: 15 year old uh, hardcore musical theater nerd, uh, just spent the summer at Interlochen. Awesome. Um, it was amazing. I had to see their final performances last Friday. And uh, to watch a bunch of 15 year olds from all over the country and Interlochen does great things with them, right? I mean, it's, it's a pretty intense, pretty, yeah. pretty cool school. They produced some of the best Broadway I've seen. I I, I was like, holy crap, you're 15. Yeah. It's amazing. Dawson's Creek, my favorite was Pacey. So just wanted to say that okay. he was my favorite. So I just
1: got to just got to lay it out there. I, I happen. To be- I, I don't, I don't pick favorites. Okay. I, I, I love them all. I happen to be a fan. So,
0: <laughs> all right, so let's jump in. Um, you somehow stumbled into insure tech and insurance in general. You've been in that space since 2007. So it, it has been a, a pretty neat ride for you, you know, 15 years now in insurance Right now, let's 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 kind of go to because you just recently took over last year as the director of innovation and strategy at IMA Financial Group. What what does IMA Financial Group do, and what do you do for them?
1: So IMA Financial is the third largest independent insurance broker in the country, retail broker, all lines. You know, PNC benefits, life and health. I've worked with IMA for the last ten years in my prior role. So I led an organization called TechAssure, which is Uh, It's a retail broker network, global broker network that focuses on all things technology risk. So we'll back up just a second and say, uh, when I got into insurance, I loved insurance because it was problem solving. It's very much like software development. It's, you know, solving a problem. How do you build a program that's fit for purpose for what this particular risk profile is? I was not very successful with traditional commercial businesses, you know, construction, real estate manufacturing like these were these were industries that i didn't really understand but i did understand technology so i was able to come in and while most brokers didn't understand how email worked i was able to come in and really understand at code level what the SaaS company was doing how it worked and how to build an insurance program that dealt with those particular risks so we joined tech Assure about 10 years ago in my former retail role IMA is a TechAssure member. I came over last year to help with our innovation uh, initiative, which is called IMA Labs, as well as help with what we call Advanced Industries, which is our focus in ensuring technology, life science, advanced manufacturing, and digital assets.
0: So did tech, is TechAssure like a consortium of brokers? Exactly. Yeah. They co-invest in technology? How, how does that work?
1: So think of it as a nonprofit trade association uh, of retail brokers all around the world that specialize in tech risk. Ah, got it. And it's it's a very unique specialty. You know, you're talking about non-standardized products. You're talking about every technology works a little bit differently. Unlike unlike other industries, you know, a $50 million software developer, compare it with a peer and they're doing vastly different things. So the insurance that they need is, is quite different. Uh, TechAssure members come together, share information, talk about best practices. What works in London will work in Boston in San Francisco and Denver, Colorado and everywhere else around the world. So that's, that's really the idea, just information share for brokers that truly specialize in that space. And you're the CEO. Yeah. Yeah. So not initially, I came in as a member. Unfortunately, the CEO got uh, sick and passed away, left the association in a in a bit of a, a little bit of a tailspin, not knowing, you know, certainly hadn't con- done contingency planning for that sort of thing. I was at the point in my former role where I either needed to be uh, running the show or I needed to, to leave because it's just a kind of a di- different cultural uh, environment. And so I, I made the decision, I'll, I'll come over uh, lead tech assure for probably two to three years. And I don't know what I'll do. I'll go start my own insure tech. I'll go start my own brokerage. And I was there for almost eight years. You know, loved it. Yeah. And, you know, the tech
0: market has gone bananas. Cyber premiums tripled roughly this year. Yeah. And limits cut in half. Yeah. Limit Limits got cut. Premiums tripled. It's a pretty wild market right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, you think of it like cyber had it had it really good for about, you know, 12, 15 years. And we kept telling every commercial policyholder, you need to buy cyber insurance. It's dirt cheap for the amount of coverage you're getting. The exposure is real. And for a long time, it was a hard sell. And we had like a sweet spot of about two years where people were buying cyber and the pricing was still low. And and carriers were moving towards that. All you need is a website, just a URL, and we can underwrite the account and give you $10 million of limit. And it'll be 2,000 bucks a year, you know, just... Really ridiculous pricing models, and that's because it's a juvenile market, right? it's it's we don't have the actuarial data like we do for property or or workers' comp. So the models weren't right. And now they've been tested thanks to ransomware and social engineering. And that's just what happens. Like it's we're starting to have a correction that was very needed. Um, it's unfortunate. It's very painful for some. Some companies, that are are not able to get the limits that they're contractually obligated to have or the types of coverage that they actually need. But it's okay. I'm not one of those people that says cyber insurance market is, is destined for failure. It's, you know, on life support. I think it just needed a correction. Yeah,
0: just too bad it had, the correction had to be all at once in one renewal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the, yeah. That's the that's that's the uh, that's the problem and the pain. So, what do you do now, leading direct leading innovation and strategy and IMA financial? W- like, what is what does a week in the life look like for you, just daily work leading innovation? Because that's when you say you're director of innovation, that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, and it can it, it's
1: a very nebulous yeah. title, yeah. right? Thank- so, thankfully, so yeah. What
0: what 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 are the daily habits of innovation look like for you?
1: Well, so I have a I have a bifurcated role. I I help with our production efforts for companies that have unique, complex technology risk, just because that's what I've done for, you know, 15 years is work with very complex technology accounts. So I'm I'm able to lend that IP to our sales and service teams to help them better articulate a value proposition. So I, I might be spending a lot of time directly speaking with with clients doing consulting consulting or prospective clients talking about the value proposition of working with a specialist. So that's, that's half of my role. The other half is working with IMA labs and that's all things insure tech, all things innovation uh, and investment. So what's unique about IMA and what I gravitated uh, towards was IMA is not only investing in insure tech, right? We're not deploying software uh, and saying we're a technology enabled agency. We do that too But we're also looking for areas where there might be a solution that doesn't exist. And if there's not, then we'll innovate it ourselves. We've done that. There's a company called high wing that came out of, of IMA labs. Uh, it's now a standalone company, uh, insure tech solution that was just not available. And, uh, we, we were able to put a team together, develop that product. And then there's also an investment component. So we have our own venture arm that's doing strategic investments. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it could be all over the map what I do on a weekly basis. Do you steer that investment fund? Uh, we have we have a separate individual who steers the the investment fund, but I'm on the team. So I, I think of myself sort of as a an early stage talent scout for insure tech. So if I'm constantly scanning the environment for what's out there, what solutions are available, who's who's building what, and for the solutions that I feel like might play a role within IMA, I'll introduce them to the team that I think they could most impact. Or if I say, you know, maybe this isn't necessarily a software that we would use, but I see the value in it and I think it's going to be an A player, then we'll talk about maybe a strategic investment. Uh, We have a pretty tight investment thesis, which is it really has to improve the life of our associates or our clients. I mean, that's the insurtech that we're focused on. You know, the carrier insurtech is very critical. I'd say that's the piece that needs the most work. That's not what we're investing in. We're really focused on driving the value for our clients and our associates to make, make the process easier, better enable them to make smarter decisions.
0: So there's a lot of insurance companies that I work with and others that I know that do not have a innovation and innovation strategy role. They don't have it. They have a CIO. So uh, for the for those companies that are out there, and there's many that listen to this, help them understand the difference between having an IT group and having an
1: innovation group. Yeah, I mean, both are both are critically important, right? I mean, you you've got to have an IT group that's overseeing the core operational tech stack for the organization to keep keep everything moving. Uh, the innovation role is really thinking, you know, more strategically about future future state. What does the vision look like five years down the road? And how do we put the pieces together for for that? And where do we think where do we think the industry is going? How do we build solutions for uh, that are going to play nice with not technology of today, but technology of five years, ten years away? So that's where a lot of our our work comes with you know Web three Labs. That's that's something that I I have a key role in, and we're really looking at Web three, blockchain, metaverse as that's the future internet. So if we don't have our hands dirty and helping build and shape products and platforms that play in that environment, then we're not going to be relevant in 10 years because that's that's where the entire world's going to be. You think so?
0: I do. You think we're actually going to move to wearing headsets?
1: Yeah, I do. Not Oculus full, you know, heavy headsets that, that are, have to be plugged into your computer and all that. But if you've looked at any of the patents that have been filed by Microsoft and Apple and others, the slim profile glasses that you and I are both wearing, eventually are going to have the metaverse baked into them, right? So it's, it's more augmented reality than virtual reality that I think we're all going to be living in. And you look, Dubai had a big announcement today. They're, they're doing a, Um, you know, tens of millions of dollar investment to become the first city in the world that's fully metaverse optimized. And that doesn't mean you're going to slip on a headset and go tour Dubai and and look around like we can do today with art museums and, and things like that. It means you can actually go to Dubai and the entire city is augmented so that you know your way around without ever having stepped foot in the city you know, the restaurants that you want to go to, the directions to meetings. It's, you know, that kind of technology, it exists today, just not at scale. And uh, the amount of money that's flowing into it, I think there's no question that's the future.
0: Yeah, it's one. It's funny because I feel like a old curmudgeon sometimes. That I've been wearing and using VR headsets since I was in high school. Yeah, I had a, we had a we had a really crude headset. I used to play like Frankenstein 3D and, and, and like I, or whatever it was. I forgot. I forgot what it was. I, I, I Franken Wolf Wolfenstein Wolfenstein
1: Wolfenstein 3D.
0: Yeah, I used to play Wolfenstein 3D in a VR headset in like 1996. And it sucked, and you wanted to puke because it was the frame rate was too low. So you and I had the very first Oculus DK one, DK two. I went to the very first Oculus Connect conference, OC one, where Palmer Luckey turned twenty one and ate a chocolate VR headset and then stripped down into his boxers and jumped into a pool, uh, at a at, in L A. It was it was a very L A moment. And, and so I've been there. Like I've been there for the moments. So I, I was there when Hololens got released. I had the very first Hololens, the second Hololens got to spend time with Alex Kipman when he was talking about releasing the HoloLens. Like we wrote apps for HoloLens. I've wrote apps for the Epson Bovierio BT 200, BT 300. I mean, okay. I've been all up in this sector and you're not feeling it. And I kind of feel like I'm no. And I kind of feel like I'm in the trough of disillusionment, you know, like <laughs> we went through the, we went through the big hype cycle and like, I've got the quest and the quest Two, And I've got the HoloLens and HoloLens too. And, I've, I have these devices. I built software for all of them. And it's it's really interesting, but at the end of the day, my primary device, and this is the guy who actually owns all of these devices and has used all of them, it's still my phone. Yeah. Right? Like, and I, I am obsessed with augmented reality. I built an AR platform eight years ago and l- loved it. I, I was fascinated by it. I, I feel like we're trying to actually sort out the stuff that people want to wear something for, you know? And- the phone has gotten so good. And you know, LiDAR on these devices, total game changer for augmented reality. Yeah. Total. Yep.
1: Yeah. But I'll tell you what, your phone can't do is train a surgeon how to operate on a patient. Nope. It can't. By providing them direction. You know, I mean, I, I suppose it could, but you I want both both of my surgeons' hands on the instruments, not not on their phone, right? No, and 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 the HoloLens two, like
0: Trimble, yep. because I, I operate heavily in the construction space. Trimble did a construction version of the HoloLens two called the XR ten. They rebalanced the weight of the battery and the device and they mounted it to a hard hat. They and they didn't and then they wrote a bunch of software to go on it to sync 3D models. And it's working and they're using it. And it's hands free and it's awesome. I mean, it's awesome. I mean, it sounds the, amazing. It is amazing. I've used it. It's awesome. Yeah. Like I've been on a job site with this thing and it, it kicks butt. I'm like, you're coming back around. I can feel it. You're going to be all in, you know, honestly, for me, it's going to hit when it, when I can wear, when I can wear this, these glasses yeah. in it and web three is interesting. And I'll, I want to bookmark web three and come back to it because I think we can talk a little more about that. I'm going to ask you a very philosophical question.
1: Mm. What is insure tech? Yeah. I know what it's not. It's not just a technology platform that the insurance industry uses. There you go. Um, I, there's a lot of legacy players that suddenly have called themselves insuretech, right? Yes, they have. And, um, almost all of them. Oh, yeah. yes. Right. And like we're OG insuretech. We were insuretech before there was insuretech. If that were true, insuretech wouldn't have existed. Right. Because the, the need for insurtech is is because our industry is so broken from a technology standpoint. I mean, let me just you can appreciate this. When I first got in to the industry, I was like, all right, these these certificates of insurance are pretty important. How do we get these to, to clients that prove that they have this thing that they bought? And I go, well, you pick up the phone and you call this lady named Sherry and she she will mail you one. And I was like, well, there's a software solution that can easily do this. Like, why? Why has no one thought of this? Yep. And so that's we're so far behind. And I think once people realize how broken and fragmented it was, you had all of this VC money pouring in to develop innovation. And that's what insuretech is. It's it's. Trying to build the the framework of tomorrow's insurance industry, not the the legacy framework. As you know, someone that that works with carriers platforms, brokers platforms, it's outdated technology. It's technology from the '90s. It literally can't be updated. It has to be burnt to the ground and rebuilt. So that that's what I think insuretech is.
0: Yeah, I I do agree with you. I like defining insuretech in a negative sense uh, by what it's not. <laughs> so you can also you can also define it by saying radically enhanced customer experience, mm-hmm. you know, a dramatic streamlining of underwriting. I, I I almost I try to explain to people like this, too. There To me, there's going paperless and there's going digital. And those are two different things. So going paperless means I'm going to take the same arduous underwriting process and I'm going to eliminate the paper in exchange for zeros and ones. Yep. Okay, bits and bytes. But I'm going to keep an identical underwriting process. I'm just going to process it with, in many cases, spreadsheets, because you and I both know there's entire carriers that run on Excel and Word only. You you can literally underwrite policies, issue policies, and manage claims only using Excel and Word. And there are many that do to a scary level. Yeah. Right. MGAs too. Oh yeah. Oh, especially MGA. Yeah. Yeah. They want they want more commission, but they don't want to buy the systems to actually do it. So they You got it. They want the thirty percent, baby. It's a good gig. They're tired of fifteen. <laughs> they want they want thirty, and then they go hire a TPA and pay them eight, and they keep the seven percent. I mean, come on. I mean, it, it's then you have digital MGAs who call themselves insure tax. And then you, then you say, okay, well, how are you an insure tech? Like by what definition are you an insure tech? Well, we have an easy to use website. Is that big in an insure tech? I mean, I, I have to say, no, that's, that's we've been building easy to use websites in insurance for decades, literally decades, right? Like some people had really crappy websites and some people had really good ones. That was just the way it was, right? Some systems were easy to use and some weren't. But I think, I think dramatically streamlining the user experience is big. Going digital rather than going paperless. So, re engineering the entire process so that underwriting, and, I, and to me, like the biggest thing, you're at a broker, right? So, the damn forms. Oh my gosh. If you're still having people fill out forms, you're not an insured tech. Yeah. Like PDF forms. I, I had to fill one out last week for a line of business I'm renewing. PDF forms. Yeah. I'm like we're in 2022 and I'm still filling out PDF forms. You can't just take last year's data and then ask me to update it in a inside of a web system that, that you can then submit to all of your No, oh no. No, 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 no. Yeah. So that 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 to me is is that's got to go at some point. It's got to be easier to buy insurance, in particular for businesses, personal lines, right? Buying home insurance, renters insurance, life, you know, lower face value life insurance. That's pretty easy now.
1: It, yeah, it's right. very easy. I mean, I think outside of high net worth homeowners, um, yeah. personal lines is going to be 100% digital. And everyone's comfortable with that. Yeah. Digital. Digital, not truly paperless. Digital. digital,
0: like truly digital. Where, where, where you, and that's the other thing for me, Garrett, InsurTechs leverage big data in traditional insurance technology. Because they not. can't. So, yeah, because they can't. Like when you enter an address, I'm going to pull all the data on your property for you. So I don't have to ask you about it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's a big one.
1: Yeah, it's it's all client experience based. Um, I mean, that, that you, you hit on the one that's, I think, the easy the poster child of application management, right? The digitization of applications. We won a very large account very recently solely because their experience with their current broker was so bad because they didn't have time to look at 12 PDFs and compare last year's to this year's. Whereas our system is smart enough to send them a smart link and just update the information and it automatically goes out to market. You know, It's the way it should have been built from the beginning. And so that's where the the brokers specifically that aren't investing in that kind of client experience are gonna start losing market share to those that are. I've been saying that for five years. I think now we're starting to see that where clients just expect more. And then once they're in that ecosystem, can you imagine going back to like, what's the renewal process look like? Well, you know, we'll send you a summary of insurance and you you go over that and mark it up and send it back. Those days are over. I hope they're over.
0: With y'all they are, Yeah, right? You've moved on from it. I would say if you had to like, def- you know, break it down into words, it would be integration is a really, really important hallmark, right? Like integrated systems. And this is something we suck at at insurance there is no real data standard for passing. I mean, there is a data standard. Okay, hold on. There is a data standard that not nearly enough people use. Yeah, that's right. Right. Like, and well, again, you're you're talking about
1: uh, so for 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 policy and claims. There's certain aspects of what we do that can easily be standardized. Then there's there's other things that can't be, and we've made we've made our own mess here. Take cyber, we were talking about, right there there could be seven insuring agreements there could be 17 insuring agreements you know cyber crime might be defined five different ways within each of those policies like it's very difficult to teach a system how 500 different markets define certain terms right so like there's just there's not a standard set of framework that everyone operates from and that's that's the problem you have to build your own data lake and teach that how to interpret all this other third-party data and it's time-consuming and it's expensive. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So integration's a
0: big hallmark, right, for me. It's easier to integrate if you use standard data sets. Most, I, here's the, I, I listen to a lot of insurance podcasts and insure tech podcasts and no one has ever talked about OMG's Standards Development Organization PNC data model. And literally, like, any podcast I've ever listened to, and maybe I've just missed an episode, but there is a PNC data model for property and casualty insurance. It actually exists. It was published in 2014, and it was signed off on by 21st Century, ACE, CSC, CTS, Cindy Mike, Gail Austin, Garza Data, Harleysville, International IBM, Liquid Hub, M. M uh, Mark B. Gorman, Object Management Group, Penn National Insurance, and TCS. They were the contributing members. And it defines just about in this specification, which is a, a, a pretty pretty sizable document, it defines almost every data field that you would need for policy and claims. It's amazing. And I had no idea it existed. And me neither <laughs> until recently. I, I, by the way, I just texted you the link to it in the awesome, chat thanks. <laughs> yeah. so you can see it because I never knew about this. And I have been doing this for, de- for 17 years, 21 years in business, 17 years in insurance. And there is an actual data model that was agreed upon by a whole group of companies that defines all the things we need. Because this is the hallmark of InsurTech is in, is integration. And if, if we use standard data models, then we can integrate more easily. Yeah. Right? Another one for me is is intelligence, the use of machine learning in some way, shape or form.
1: I agree. I think we're we're really early days on that. You know, there have been a few yeah. companies that have dipped their toe into that water thinking, you know, our AI platform is very smart. And there have been quite a few failures. So I I agree. AI is absolutely the future. It's just, I'm not, I'm not sure we're there to where it's, it's, it's able to be rolled out at scale. It can do certain things, right? But it's, it's, it's not a, it's not an enterprise solution yet. Not in, a, in some regards,
0: it's being useful. There, there's uh there's some interesting players that are doing things with reserve setting that I'm really interested in. Hmm where they're looking at historical claim data and they're making recommendations on reserves and they're making recommendations on treatments and work comp claims. And uh, they're saying it based on the entire data set, our machine learning algorithm has run on this data set and we're recommending that you get nurse case management on these three claims. Yeah. Because, it,
1: and so it's it's like a super specific use, right? That's what I mean. So we're yeah. we're using it with benchmarking data, right? Because same sort of thing. Well, based on the industry, the, yep. the NICS code or SIC, code uh the revenue size of the client uh, what we know about them these are the estimated maximum probable losses per line these are the, the carriers that you should look yeah. to the market like that's that's where it can do a good job with the right data set you know you got to have clean data with clean data which goes
0: back to standards so integration intelligence automation is another hallmark for me and um i, I think that's something that we've gotten better at is, is actually automating workflows. Have you done any experimentation or work with uh, RPA robotic process automation? Very little that I'm involved in no. Software robots. Yeah. It's, it's been an interesting bridge technology for me where it's not the end state. Like it shouldn't be the end state to train a robot, how to use a human user interface. <laughs> Cause mm-hmm. ideally you just have an API to work with. Yeah. But in the, in the absence, like we have a, just a huge absence of APIs, right? To integrate with our systems and so at the end of the day sometimes you got to work around the api by using something like uipath and so i see that as a big hallmark as well but then of course the use of bi and the use of business intelligence systems it's been interesting watching the world evolve from crystal reports to power bi and beyond Uh, but i think that's a major hallmark so i I just i I always like talking about what is insure tech because i feel like we throw the phrase around and now i feel like the legacy Players have misappropriated the phrase to make sure they don't feel left out. And we're kind of losing track of the definition of what it actually means,
1: you know. And I'll go back to my point to say if there wouldn't be a a need for all of these companies to exist if the legacy players had built it correctly from the beginning. So, yeah, boom. Of course, the world evolves, too, right? hundred percent. Like
0: the data sets we have available. The first company I worked with insurance was a roof inspection company for property. They did inspections. That's all they did, underwriting inspections. And and uh we were like, you know, drones, these things called drones are coming out, they might really impact this. And satellite imagery, like on-demand satellite imagery could really and and sure enough, now you look at what's going on in in house inspections and roof inspections, totally different ball game because technologies exist that didn't exist at the time, right? Yeah, that's very true. So they didn't miss in two thousand one or 2003, they just didn't have the tech available to them, and Elon wasn't up there with 40,000 satellites either. This is true. What do you think is going to be big next? Like, because we're talking about hype cycles, right? Like, what's big for y'all? You're a
1: broker. Tell me what the next big project is for a broker. So we did digital applications, digital underwriting. Uh, I think now servicing on a digital basis. I think certificates are, are compliance is a big issue for a lot of insureds, and not having mm-hmm. real genuine oversight in you know who their vendors are, who their clients are, and and more importantly what their contracts obligate them to. Like there's a, there's a lot of nuance in a commercial insurance portfolio, and it bleeds into legal contracts, like lease agreements, vendor contracts. So to be able to automate that. To be able to have oversight using a digital platform that's smart enough to identify where you're compliant, where your weak, blind areas are. That's, I think, tomorrow. I mean, the technology's here. There's a few players. Mm. um, But I think that's where we're going to be headed to where we're providing a much more digital solution and claims is the other you know where the claims process is so backwards how we've done it uh, and i think everything from reporting i think you can appreciate this just given what your company does you know there's just a much better way cuz that's really that's what they bought was the claims experience right they bought the, they bought this this mm-hmm. paper to perform in their time of need and 90% of, of consumers and business owners feel like it was a terrible experience when they actually had a claim. So we've got to figure that out, how to make it faster, less onerous on them and expedite the entire process from, from weeks into hours. Garrett, I just went through a property claim. Personally. Cause I, uh, personally,
0: and I had a, I had a water damage, ice maker water mm-hmm. line. Ice makers are terrible. And, uh, I'll do it
1: every time. Yeah.
0: Terrible, terrible, terrible! Like it makes me never want to buy an ice maker ever again. Yeah, because the amount of damage it it did was pretty, yeah. pretty incredible. <laughs> you know, pretty incredible. You know, flooring, ceiling, a whole, a, a couple, a few things that it was on the second floor too. So it it you know it was it was a mess, and, and the claims experience was not good. It was it was confusing. Super long time to get an answer. I I I had to call and leave a voicemail. I couldn't text with my claims adjuster. Um, The emails took forever and I had, I had to constantly re remind him of which claim number it was. So I had to always look it up. It was awful. It was like, yeah, it was so dumb. And then the payments, they screwed it up and they mailed a payment that was for my construction guy to me. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what we're talking about. You know, this, this is terrible, right? It's terrible. I agree with you. It's got to get a lot better. And the brokers have to lead the way too, you know, because they're the ones with with the relationship with the client. I think they've got to, we're seeing a lot of brokers go into a claim stewardship role, you know, where they kind of steward the claim along and they've got to have a better way of, of keeping data together. You know, a lot of insure techs, this is my final question for you, Garrett, because you're involved in your, in your investment fund. A lot of insure techs about five years ago, were saying we're going to, we're going to disintermediate the broker. In fact, pretty much all of them are saying that we're going to be a digital MGA, then we're going to be a carrier and we're going to go direct to market and we're going to cut all the brokers out. No, that is not what happened. Like, no, not even close to what happened. (laughs) So, I mean, there are some direct to consumer plays, but the vast majority of these companies are like, oh, no, we have to work with brokers. We can't possibly scale without them.
1: Yeah. So they've pivoted to we are going to enable brokers we're not going to disintermediate them we are going to enable them there you go. which i think is better because it study after study shows that consumers want a guide an expert to, to hold their hand through the process and and going through a website is just not the same thing so if if you're yeah if you're paying attention all of the insure techs that were out there saying we're going to be direct to consumer are now partnering with brokers, even those you know five years five years ago that <laughs> I told you know have, what's your broker partnership strategy? Oh, we're not we're not partnering with brokers, and then today no we don't need we don't to, need do, to do that. Yeah, sure, okay, <laughs> yeah yeah you know pride comes before the fall as
0: they say uh, in the, in the south uh, it's a. Uh, it's a tough thing, uh, but it, it is, it is proven that human relationships, I think still reign supreme.
1: A hundred percent. You
0: know, you've got people do business with other people, but what we're, what we're trying to do now, you know, of course, you're talking to a guy who's, who's spent 21 years in software and 17 of that in insurance. And uh, the whole time I've been providing tooling to the existing players to try and eliminate friction. And, and so that's really what, you know, my goal has been all along is let's, let's cut all the friction out so that we can we can have great human relationships and great human interactions but without the friction of having to fill forms out remember your claim number uh, find the right email address uh, tr- you know trip through 80 page applications you know let's let's just kill the friction so that um, you can easily sign up you can easily pay and you can easily file a claim and get paid back like if 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 we can do those four things then this is going to be great because then insurance companies can do what they do great, which is calculate risk and take risk, right? Or in in the brokerage business, form great relationships. And what my broker does for me, identify areas that I don't have coverage in that I need help.
1: That's right. Well, and your broker can, we know how, as brokers, we know how to navigate the insurance landscape. We know how to navigate carriers yeah. uh with regards to claims or or underwriting or whatever function that's not on you like you as the insurance buyer shouldn't have to have an insurance license to know how do I get paid for this claim that I just had that's what a broker should be doing managing that and it's more of a psychological relationship of just being there to help you through the process to say you're not crazy this is not a great process but we're going to hold your hand and we're going to help this thing happen we're going to expedite where it can yeah, know, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done.
0: There is, you know, I thought I'm a pilot, so I fly, love flying. Aviation insurance is super complicated.
1: And expensive.
0: Yes, it's very expensive, very complicated, very hard to navigate. And uh, you get a lot of rejections, you know, because, and, and I could not do it without because I tried doing it online direct and it was a terrible experience. And I got a really good insurance broker who specializes in aviation and, and it completely changed everything. Right. There's still a lot of value. So I just want to to close on that with you. Yeah. Because, you know, I think it's important to remind everybody how much value good brokers add to the buying process and the claims experience. And I'm thrilled that someone like you is leading innovation at a firm like yours.
1: Cool. Thank you.
0: So I I appreciate what you're doing and um, also appreciate your vintage. 1979 was a good year. Yes, sir. It was a good year. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a good year for the for the for this vintage of wine that we come from.
1: So uh <laughs> That's right. My kids my kids remind me uh they they remind me that I was born in the 70s all the time. Yes. Are you are you enjoying stranger things? Love it. Of course, you know the answer to that. Yes, of course.
0: I said, "Kid, this is what childhood was like. No electronics." playing outside until the sun, until the uh, streetlights came on <laughs> no parental supervision. It
1: was fantastic. <laughs> oh yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah. How the world has changed.
0: Oh, how it has changed Garrett. I appreciate your time. Thanks for being on the insure tech geek podcast and talking tech with us. Uh, really do appreciate it. And, uh, thanks to all of you listeners out in listener land for joining us. We'll see you on
1: the next show. Thanks. Same to you.
0: This has been the InsureTech Geek podcast uh, powered by JB Knowledge. That's jbknowledge.com. It's all about transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com with co-host Rob Galbraith. That's endofinsurance.com. Big thanks to Jim Greenley, our podcast producer, Kara Dalton-Alaro, our creative producer. And thank you for joining us today. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next time.